from the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Humans and trees share a rich history of interrelation, one that has granted our tall, woody friends with symbolic importance for the resources, the security, and the majesty they provide us. The urban historian and author of Republic of Shade, Thomas Campanella, envisions a more personal relationship, stating that in trees we see ourselves, and in their seasons we find a map of our own lives. The practice of safeguarding and celebrating particularly significant trees has a storied history in American communities. In the early 1990s, Portlanders experimented with a new method to protect their arboreal neighbors, motivated by fears that a new wave of development would carelessly remove the city's oldest trees. Citizens pressured city council to pass a heritage tree ordinance. The law provided the city with the ability to designate trees as protected landmarks. Today, There are nearly 300 heritage trees scattered about Portland, including one remarkable European copper birch in front of our own PSU library. Over the past summer, tensions have increased between neighbors and developers over housing demolition and condo construction. The city is again at the center of the argument over who decides which trees to protect and which to let fall. What role do historians play in this conversation? What does it mean to have a tree designated as part of our city's heritage? Helping us answer these questions today is our guest, Catherine McNoor, Associate Professor of Environmental and Urban History here at PSU. In the spring of 2015, she she instructed the course Portland's Heritage Trees, a public history laboratory. It was a new class she developed in collaboration with the arborists of Portland's Department of Parks and Recreation. Through this course, students produced a variety of educational materials, which included walking tour maps, children's coloring books, and collectible trading cards, and even podcasts. As Ryan and I mentioned last week, um, those podcasts are where the idea for Beyond Footnotes was born. Ryan, Kat Tholen, and I took our own research, as well as that of Alicia Gimbellini, Taylor Rose, and Kira Leslie, to create a series of recordings aimed at both academic and casual audiences with an interest in environmentalism. We'll be sharing some of those podcasts later in the show, but first, we'd like to welcome Professor McNair. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thanks for having me. So what was the original motivation for creating the Heritage Tree Lab for the Public History Program here at Portland State? Well, I was looking to um, find find a, a course that would bridge together environmental history and public history in a way that was significant for Portland itself. And Portland being a um, official Arbor Arbor uh, Day tree town, um, also known as Stump Town too. Is, the trees are pretty important to Portland's uh, heritage and its history. Um, and, and there are a lot of you know tree-loving people in Portland, too. Um, I had actually come across tree history as something significant, personally doing research in the 19th century in East Coast cities and coming across a lot of obituaries written for trees that had fallen. And each time these obituaries were long, like the equivalent of obituaries that are written for famous, famous you know, Americans, um, 
talking about what kind of history that tree had witnessed, uh, whether it was the American Revolution passing through a city or the transformation of a neighborhood. And it's got me thinking about like what what kind of um, history is embedded in a, in a tree for, for a community and for a city and for a country. Um, so that's how I started thinking about it. And then finding out that we had these heritage trees and this, this kind of rich, lively program through the Portland Parks and Rec, I, I um, kind of jumped on that. And it was uh, great to work with the arborist so, um, so that it was a great opportunity to bring the two, bridge the two and bring it to uh, the history department. So it sounds like the class was a success, in your opinion, or it was it was hands down my my most favorite class that I've ever taught. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Cool. So uh, I guess what will could we see the Heritage Tree class coming back in the future, or what kind of form will it take? I'm I'm planning to teach it again next year, um, and I'm looking at different ways uh, to to make it work. We're, I'm I'm right now in conversation with some third grade teachers at Portland Park uh, Portland Public Schools who teach Portland history, and so I'm thinking of bringing the class um, to specifically focus around a neighborhood. Um, and then we can help build out a curriculum that the teachers can use with third graders in Portland so that they can get a sense of their neighborhood, a sense of place, a little pride of place in their neighborhood, and get to also learn about trees and Portland's history simultaneously. That seems like a fantastic idea. Um, so what sort of crossovers do you see between the fields of history and environmental science? Well, environmental history bring, brings the two together, and it's been environmental history as a field started in around the 1970s, kind of simultaneously with the the birth of Earth Day and environment, the modern environmental movement, um, and really environmental science and history speak to, to each other in significant ways. You can bring new techniques into understanding the history of, of human society by making sure that you know that nature is uh, an actor, um, that it's a part of the history that's being written, um, and that you can't really understand it. And it's not just a background, but it's a, it's a part of people's understanding of their life and their, and their world, and it also impacts um, the events of history. Um, and so environmental science kind of it brings new methods to history that are kind of innovative and, and exciting in many ways. Well, something I alluded to in the beginning, which kind of takes the history to today, is uh, kind of the topic I wanted to bring up and really hear what your thoughts are. Because this summer there was this rise in concern over the removal of a lot of trees in Portland that kind of echoed back to earlier years when the Heritage Tree Ordinance was first passed. Um, and in one case... Um, and res a resident uh, activist, environmentalist, conducted a tree sit, 76 hours, to prevent the removal of some trees in southeast Portland. Um, organizations like Stop Demolishing Portland, which has been focusing on houses, has now, in that instance and also in other instances around the city this summer, you've been seeing them also talking about trees, um, which was first the organization started about housing removal. So I'm curious, like with this topic going on right now, um, how do you see historians, how can they enter this conversation to benefit um, the city? Well, you know, I think I think the um, number of events this summer um, and this fall, with with regards to trying to preserve trees and the out um, the outburst of of energy to to save these trees from both children to adults, to, um, shows just how important 
trees, large trees, historic trees are to a community's sense of place and a community's identity. And so when, when trees are threatened, people really can rally together to save them. Um, and I see, you know, I see the work that our class has been doing and that um, we will continue to do and historians in general who, who study these trees it's basically to, to bring value and kind of remind people of the history behind these trees and, and, to, and to, to, you know, to really help to build that value so that people walk down the street. It's not just a tree in the background. It's not just a disposable tree. I mean, people get worked up about trees just in their largeness and their kind of significance and their beauty. But also, if you have the history there, too, they have added value. And I, I don't really see this threat changing. In fact, I think it's probably only going to grow because of, it, it's kind of an ironic issue. It's, you know, we have this really enviable urban growth boundary that keeps the, Portland from sprawling outwards. What, what that means that that, is that there's a lot of infill. And so in our environmental, this, you know, this urban growth boundary and its amazing environmental impact or lack of, you know, impact um, in turn means that there's going to be a threat to a lot of the trees in the urban canopy. And, um, and so there's going to be a lot of need to sort of mitigate that and try to find ways to allow for continued urban growth with all the population moving into Portland, but while still maintaining some of these, these you know, community markers, landmarks, um, and, and, and just, frankly, the, the, the beautiful trees that are there right now. So sort of touching on that issue, um, you know, we had talked a little bit about development in our brief time studying the, the topic last year. Um, what are some of the other social issues that you see arising, um, both in the preservation of those trees and cutting them down? Um, I mean, I guess I'm thinking the impact on what neighborhoods that sort of development happens in or um, just how that looks at looking into the future of our city. Yeah, in terms of just even even looking beyond the, the Heritage Tree Program, but just the urban canopy generally, you're going to find it overlapping with... Um, uh, you know, with with social class. Um, you know, if you have a nice neighborhood, you're more likely to have street trees, especially in a, in a situation where um, trees have to be planted by homeowners. It's the people who can pay for the trees, who have the time to, you know, have a landscaper come and trim them or, or um, will will devote water to that, that resource. Um, and so you have trees mostly in r wealthier neighborhoods. It's also going to draw people in, too, because it looks like a nicer neighborhood with street trees. Um, but that means that air quality is poorer in other neighborhoods. And then in turn, the heritage trees are mostly in the nicer neighborhoods, the close-in neighborhoods, um, and because there are more trees there, but also because heritage trees have to be supported by private um, homeowners. And so if it's going to be on their property and if it's going to be designated. So you, the people have to know about the heritage tree program before they're going to have reach out and, and deal with, you know, going through the process and then taking care of a tree on their property and the protections that are involved in it, too. So it's going to be, it's going to reflect um, socioeconomic issues in the city. And, you know, hopefully... Ideally, the, the program that we're working on here is going to make the Heritage Tree Program even more visible to a wider public, and then maybe other people will, in other neighborhoods will be interested in, in designating trees. We've you know, made efforts to look at trees in neighborhoods that are underrepresented um, in public parks where those trees can be designated without, the, um, without, public, uh, without private homeowners needing to do anything. Um, so we'll see what happens. I know the parks, parks and rec are interested in that that's, that issue as well, and they're they're making their own efforts there too. Well, if we're preserving these trees, I guess uh, I have 
begs the question in my mind, or how do, I guess, how does, how do trees impact the way communities think about their past or their roles in the present? Yeah, and you know, a tree that has um, some sort of designation, you might think it has a higher value, right? You'll you'll want to you'll kind of st- maybe maybe instead of just walking past it, you'll you'll stand there and you'll think, oh, this is a sequoia, how interesting, you know. And if we can somehow bring the history in there somehow through podcasts or um, apps or um, QR codes on the little tags or whatever the case is, then maybe someone will sit and think, oh, so this is this tree was brought in when this neighborhood was transforming. Um, and get a, get a history, a snippet of history about uh, Chinese immigration into Portland or African-American neighborhoods in Portland or whatever the case is, women's history in Portland or pioneer history in Portland, whatever the case is, the transformation of a neighborhood, the tree that was left after development came through. Um, and then you start to think about what how, how, tr- how Portland has transformed the various people from native immigrants, you know, whatever the case is, people who've lived in Portland and how they've had an impact on the on the land and how remnants of that history still exist through these trees that have longer lifespans than humans. So um, sort of touching on some of those ideas, um, I mean, Ryan and I obviously know what came out of the heritage tree class, but what what sort of I maybe you want to elaborate on some of the projects that the other students did? I mean, we're going to introduce some of the podcasts later today, but... Yes, and those, those podcasts are phenomenal, um, and I encourage anyone listening to not only hear the podcast this afternoon, but also to, to check out the um, website for the class that has all that lists all the podcasts too. Um, what the the website is pdx.edu slash history slash heritage trees. Um, and the other projects, there were people who put together walking tours in North Portland um, that would take you take you around and get, give you a sense of trees, both designated and un- undesignated. Um, there were uh, coloring a coloring book geared towards kids um, that had some activities in it that for downtown trees. Um, a, a master student who wasn't in our class but um, was working the summer before as an intern for Parks and Rec put together this booklet for a walking tour um, through through Portland's uh, downtown trees. Um, and there are other trading cards that were geared towards more teenagers, and we have those up on the on the website too as um, as as images that people could technically download. Um, and there's, we also worked with an app developer to, for the PDX Trees app, and that, that's still in production, but we, we'll probably get um, the, that, that material up live, and as, as the PDX Trees app gets uh, re- redone, we'll have that information up soon. Well, I have a, another question. You um, had a very successful book that won some awards called Taming Manhattan. Um, I'm curious, what is what are you working on now as far as like your next project? Uh, um, sorry to put you on the spot, but um, I think I'm curious. Well, right? yeah, I'm 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 considering delving into a couple different things. Um, one project involves the the history of ideas of purity and environmental purity and how. Um, uh, issues with pesticides, uh, 19th century pre-germ theory kind of stuff, um, looking at ways people are trying to control their lives and control the environment um, and how that changed over time. Um, 
and I'm also looking into the Ilanthus tree, which is considered a, um, a invasive species now, but at one point during the 18-teens and 1820s was celebrated as this like exotic Chinese amazing plant, the, the tree of heaven. So I, I'm going to look back at that and see how it was advertised and how, how what nurserymen were thinking of it and all that sort of thing. Oh, wow. All right. Well, the trees continue on the research, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Um, so you, you've graciously made some time in your schedule to come down here and visit us. Uh, and so you were at a conference last week, correct? <laughs> yes, on uh, pigs. <laughs> Anything interesting you saw there you wanted to share? Maybe <laughs> anecdote, sure. interesting research? Yeah, it was um, uh, the kind of funny opening to the conference was there was a panel on the ethics of eating pork and if it was ever ethical to eat pork. Um, directly followed by a hog roast, <laughs> which was probably the most interesting conference experience I've had yet. Um, and there's just a lot of discussion of eating pigs, and I was on a panel about urban pigs, um, which relates to my book, uh, Taming Manhattan. Um, uh, and there were some interesting cor- correlations between what was happening in 19th century New York City and what happened before the swine flu in in, uh, in Egypt and Cairo with um, pigs being forced off the streets. But... Um, yeah, it was a it was a pretty great experience and a very focused uh, focused conference. Yeah. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, and you're also like in between panels, attending panels, and being a part of the Western History Association conference, which is happening like right now in Portland. So, right. what have you seen there? I haven't gotten to go. Oh, it's fantastic! You know, there's a lot of cowboy hats and a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of interesting research being done that's bridging the kind of uh, um, uh, spatial history, like the Western history, but there are a lot of Southern historians there who were talking about the Civil War in, in the West and uh, cities in the West and identities and everything like that. So it's been it's, it's a pretty phenomenal uh, conference and a lot of great, great scholars in town right now. So. There's a lot of PSU uh, folks participating in it too, as well, right? That's right. We yeah. have I've seen our master's students and undergrads there running tours, um, attending uh, attending things, um, being on the panels. PSU is very well represented at this conference. Okay. All right. Well, there is something else you wanted to mention as well, right? That's uh, right. Something coming up. Yeah, Portland's State of Mind is is um, featuring uh, a heritage tree um, talk. Uh, be- I'm going to be introducing one of our master students, Dave Hedberg, who's going to talk about his research and his booklet on heritage trees. And that's on um, the 28th, Wednesday, at 6 p.m. in uh, the browsing lounge of, two thir- uh, at, of Smith Memorial um, Union. That's at room 238. And um, it's going to be an hour. It's free to the public. And we'll be talking about how you can how you can see... Uh, Portland's history through its trees. And they can find more information probably on the history department's website, right? That's um, right. Yeah. Which is pdx.edu slash history. So. Yeah, and uh, just to mention that we are here on KPSU. They also are going to have a pre- uh, presence at Portland State of Mind, so keep an eye out for that KP- KPSU billing. Um, well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks really for having appreciate me. you coming down. Yeah, thank you. And um, that is a wonderful introduction to our next p- portion of the show where uh, Joshua and I are going to show or play some of the podcasts that we worked on together for that Portland Heritage Tree class. You can find these also at um, the website for the history department, bdx.edu slash history slash heritage trees. So the first episode that... 
we'll play today looks at the life and work of Henry Miller. He was an early and well-known Portland orchardist, horticulturalist, and entrepreneur. Caitlin Tholen tells us through her research how Miller was a visionary in Portland's early fresh fruit industry. If left to their own devices, heritage or landmark trees are long-lived and relentless in their growth. There are what we humans describe as witness trees, sedentary in their location, observing the chaos of man, building, creating, moving, and destroying around them. But what about those trees whose natural systems of growth only allow, say, 40 to 50 years of life? Don't they have a story to tell as well? And what about the stories of all those chaotic people who brought all those trees along the way with them? In this short history lesson, I'm going to tell you about the business and life endeavors of one of Portland's first nurserymen, John Gerald Vaughn Mueller, less formally known as Henry Miller. I'm also going to tell you about his connection with the ecologically short-lived but historically significant tree, Prunus domestica, also known as the Italian plum tree. Henry was an immigrant from Germany coming to America to pursue the life and wealth and independence in a new land. Henry originally settled in Indiana, where he met his wife, Mary Schultz, also a native German. In 1853, Henry and his wife and seven children set off across the plains to Oregon. Once in Oregon, Henry Miller acquired 320 acres of land. On this land, along with his business partner, J.H. Lambert, created a successful orchard and nursery business, where they catered to the desired needs of locals in the Milwaukee area and also in the Portland and surrounding states. The firm of Miller and Lambert was very successful throughout the 1850s and into the 1860s. One of the most important trees that became widely distributed by Miller was the Prunus domestica, or Italian plum tree. This fruit-bearing tree was very important to the early communities of Portland. During the early years of Portland's development, fresh fruit was hard to come by. The Italian plum tree solved this problem in numerous ways. It had impeccable shipability, was excellent when fresh, and the plums could also be preserved to be made into any type of prune product. A friend of Miller and fellow Portland orchardist, J.R. Cardwell, is quoted saying, You cannot understand the sensation of this occasion. The first boxes of Italian prunes on a country wagon collected a crowd of merchants, clerks, and street people to the market, and how voraciously they were eaten out of hand on the spot. The price, though extravagant, was not considered cannot understand for you were never young a thousand miles away from home in a new country isolated without transportation and without fruit. The current confines of a legacy tree suggest that the tree must be long-lived. Unfortunately, Italian plum trees only have a lifespan of 50 to 65 years, but the plum and its products continue to have a cultural significance. We can find evidence of the celebration of Henry Miller's legacy in the types of plums still planted around Portland today. Henry Miller was the catalyst for the process of taking the Italian plum tree out of obscurity and making it agriculturally and historically significant to the people of Portland. All right, next we're going to look at a history of Laurelhurst Park and a lone cat tree that oversaw the cultural and social changes of the 1960s. This episode is an abridged version of a research paper by Alicia Gambellini.
Laurelhurst Park, with its duck pond, aged firs, winding paths, and old lampposts, is typically associated with the wealth and elegance of the surrounding neighborhood and the era in which it was developed. But if one observes the park's only heritage tree, 70-foot Katsura, one can unravel the much more complicated history. In a park known for its urbane 20th century design, such a large-sized Katsura tree is a horticultural anomaly whose origins reflect larger cultural and social trends that were taking place across the country. The Katsura tree is native to Japan and northern China and was first introduced to the United States in 1865. Despite this early introduction, the Katsura did not become common in the Pacific Northwest until the late 1950s. During this time period, the U.S. was still involved in the rebuilding of Japan after the devastation of World War II, and Americans who served in Japan following the war began to bring back Japanese plants and styles of planting. This new post-war interest in Japanese horticulture was part of a larger growing interest in Japanese culture that was deeply connected to changing American cultural and social attitudes following the end of World War II. Writers and philosophers such as Jack Kerouac and Alan Watts were heavily influenced by Japanese culture and tradition, particularly Zen Buddhism, and their work would be an important influence in the 1960s counterculture movement. The Laurelhurst Park Heritage Tree, which is one of Portland's oldest living katsuras, was very much a part of this post-war trend. The tree, according to Portland tree expert Phyllis Reynolds, is roughly 60 years old. There's photographic evidence of the tree at quite a substantial size that is dated circa 1960 making it possible the tree is even older than that estimate. It is quite interesting that the Katsura was planted in Laurelhurst Park. The Laurelhurst neighborhood was built at the turn of the century as a residential suburb for Portland's affluent citizens seeking to escape the inner city. The park was meant to be the neighborhood's crown jewel and a way to attract the city's elite to the new development. As a result, the park's design matches the urban nature of the surrounding neighborhood. The park's preliminary plans, which were composed by park superintendent and former Olmsted firm employee Emanuel Misch in 1910, stated that the future site was intended to become an ornate property in a neighborhood that would not attract the poorer classes. The land on which the park is built was originally a cattle and dairy farm owned by William S. Ladd, former Portland mayor and developer of Ladd's Edition. It was purchased in 1909 by a collection of wealthy investors from Seattle and Portland, known as the Laurelhurst Group. The group sought to develop the area into an affluent, residential suburb with the intention of using the park as its main selling point. The park followed the landscaping trends of the time period and was developed in a classic Olmsted style. The Olmsteads were known for designing parks that highlighted a space's natural features, and in the case of Laurelhurst, this meant the preservation of William Ladd's fir trees. So much thought was put into creating a stylish park that in the early plans, the designers did not want to build a playground as they believed that, as the surrounding neighborhood would never be densely populated or impoverished, it would be an unnecessary structure and would detract from the space's natural beauty. The planner's unwillingness to build a playground reveals how the park was being designed for the expected social class of the surrounding neighborhood. Despite Laurelhurst elitist origins, the park would undergo many changes throughout its history. During the 1960s, the park and the surrounding area would become consumed by the larger social and cultural changes of the post-war era, and in many ways, the planning and growth of the Katsura tree was part of the shift. During the 60s, as the Katsura matured, the character of inner southeast Portland, like the rest of the country, began to change. Counterculture was on the rise, and inner southeast Portland was beginning to develop its bohemian character that it still holds today. Even Portland's blue-blooded Laurelhurst neighborhood was unable to escape this transition of values and people. The incursion of hippies into the Laurelhurst Park shocked many of the area's longtime residents, 
And beginning in 1968, complaints began to flow into both the parks department and even the mayor's office concerning a rapid transformation that the park had undergone. Seemingly overnight, the park had become the favorite hangout spot of undesirables, who according to one official complaint, smoked marijuana and drank beer in public, offering drugs to children, singing and playing instruments at all hours. This invasion of Laurelhurst Park by undesirables had startled the community, and very rapidly, the chief concerns about the park had switched from the cleanliness of the duck pond to disapproval of the young, long-haired Parks Department employee who liked to work with his shirt off, and according to one complaint, looked like a naked woman. In an Argonian article, dated September 4th, 1968, these young hippies moved to Laurelhurst Park after the city's traditional counterculture hangout spot at Lair Hill Park had suddenly become violent and dangerous when tough motorcycle gang peddlers had taken over. As previously mentioned, Laurelhurst Park exemplified wealth as did the surrounding, exclusive Laurelhurst neighborhood, and this change came as a shock to residents. In a letter to the Parks Department, one resident said, We have lived at 3330 Southeast Oak for 47 years. We always paid our taxes and attempted to make our property neat and attractive. All of our neighbors did too, and we were very proud of our lovely park and street. Now no attention is paid to curfew laws, and our district is denied much-needed sleep. The neighborhood was changing, and Laurelhurst Park had become the contact zone between Laurelhurst original residents and this new wave of baby boomers. The very same cultural shift that had brought about the popularity of the cat trees was also a part of the shifting mindsets of this new young generation who had taken residence in the park. In a park that had been defined by its elegant, turn-of-the-century landscape design, the origins of the park's only heritage tree reveals a different, less well-known part of the park's history. The tree is historically significant, not only because of the important changes that it witnessed during the post-war era, but also because the tree's origins are intimately tied to these same changes. Like the hippies that flocked to Laurelhurst Park in the late 60s, the origins of the tree and the popularity of cat trees in general reflect the changing character of the neighborhood, the city, and even the country. Alright, so our next episode here is going to be based on research by Taylor Rose. It's a looking at the heritage tree number 317, the Silver Linden. It's located on 408 North Rosa Parks Way. A mature silver linden is a dazzling tree with a big personality, but unfortunately it is a rare sight in Portland. The only one on the Portland Heritage tree list is on the southwest corner of North Haight Street and North Rosa Parks Avenue in North Portland. It was designated tree number 317 in 2014. Some of the city's best undesignated examples, however, can be seen just two blocks to its west at Peninsula Park. Emmanuel Miche, landscape architect for the park, designed its formal rose garden in 1909. Three years later, when his team was planting its roses, they added silver lindens around the garden's perimeter. Planted in 1912, these trees are over 100 years old. Though Miche left no record as to why he chose to go with the lindens, a casual stroll around the garden, especially in July, suggests he made a good choice. Their heart-shaped leaves grow from four to five inches in length and cast dense shade. 
They produce fragrant flowers in the early summer, drop bright yellow leaves in autumn, and resist pollution, no problem. Best of all, they have a shimmering effect in the wind as the dark green leaves hide a soft, silvery underside. This is where the silver in Silver Linden comes from, a perfect complement to Peninsula Park and the surrounding community. Now, from Peninsula Park, we go farther north to St. John's Pier Park. Here we'll take a listen to a story about a stand of Douglas firs that were pretty significant in a 1934 longshore strike. between the employer and the employed, between the owners of aggregated capital and the units of organized labor. I went across the river, I lay down to sleep. The northern edge of Pier Park, where Columbia Boulevard now passes over the railroad tracks, was the site of a violent encounter in the summer of 1934 between striking longshoremen and the Portland police. While today, the hundreds of Douglas fir trees in the park are known as obstacles for disc golfers playing the 18-hole course, in earlier decades, the Douglas firs were remembered for the day when they shielded longshoremen from police bullets. It's believed that beneath the bark of these trees lay the lead bullets in the buckshot from Portland's Bloody Wednesday. In May 1934, thousands of longshoremen at every port city on the West Coast went on strike. The strike ended 83 days later, with the longshoremen winning both the recognition of their union and significant improvements to their working conditions. It was a turning point in the labor movement on the whole West Coast, which rallied the community to the aid of their striking neighbors. St. John's resident, June Armstrong Cusick, recalled how local bakeries supplied daily trays of food and coffee to the longshoremen on the picket line. Every day, union pickets prevented replacement workers and cargo from entering the port. But by July, local employers grew determined to forcefully break the union's pickets, which were bordering the forested bluff of Pier Park. At 7 a.m. on July 11th, 100 policemen under the direction of Chief Burton K. Lawson piled aboard a 25-car train bound for Terminal No. 4 in St. John's. Less than a week earlier, Lawson tried but failed to break the picket line using tear gas and mass arrest. This time when the train approached the intersection of what is now Columbia Boulevard at the northern edge of Pier Park, it met a mass of 500 strikers blocking the path of the train with their bodies and makeshift barricades. The accounts of strikers and police about what happened next conflict, but we know that the police opened fire upon unarmed picketers using shotguns and pistols. Longshoreman Matthew Meehan later recalled, Fortunately, the trees saved them. The lucky thing was that they happened to pick the only place where there was some trees, and the trees covered some of the men. However, not all were so fortunate. Four picketers were wounded, too seriously, and taken to local hospitals. Mian was given the bloody shirt of one of the injured workers and then interrupted a city council meeting to present it to the mayor. We hold you responsible for this, Mayor Carson. That evening, the Oregonian reported that revolver bullets and buckshot were found in several trees. Julia Rutala, then living in Linton, just across the Willamette River from St. John's, visited the scene the next day. What I saw over there changed the entire course of my life. Rutala described seeing trees in the park 
pockmarked with bullet holes. Outraged at the mayor for his role in the shooting, Rutila drafted a recall petition for Mayor Carson, known now within the labor community as Bloody Shirt Joe. Rutila later reflected, It was the first conscious, planned political action of my life. In 1935, she assisted a union drive at the West Oregon Lumber Company and became a prominent labor, peace, and social justice activist for the rest of her life. I went across the river. Pier Park's Douglas firs have served as shields, witnesses, and powerful symbols within Portland's history. Today, when we visit Pier Park and walk among the firs, those once pockmarked trees are impossible to identify. Time has taken its toll on the Douglas firs, as well as the lives and memories of those who were there that day. Trees have fallen, new ones have grown in their place, and there's no one left to identify the trees that stood there in 1934. The memory of Bloody Wednesday exists today much like the bullets beneath the bark of the Douglas firs. Present, but hidden. Poignant, but scattered. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded at KPSU Studio. Music in this episode is from Michael Dannon and Rob Simonson, as well as Matthew Robert Cooper. Thank you. You can follow us on Facebook. Or hear other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting kpsu.org, finding us on the schedule there, or head to pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, this has been Joshua Justice. And I'm Ryan Wisnor. Thank you for listening.
after a successful completion of Season 1, Shades of Green is honored to enter our second year at KPSU. But this time, it's gonna be Shades of Green Season 2, with some more surprises. So tune in, same time, same station, Thursdays at 4 p.m. with DJ Anki from the Institute for Sustainable Solutions. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Been a little bad? Well, you can do a little good. Donate to the Circus Project via WWGG and squeeze in a few more sins before you redeem 2015. Sinner's Soiree is an interactive living art party with Portland's top circus and vaudeville talent tempting you to indulge your wildest fantasies while providing instant, absurd absolution. For more information, visit thecircusproject.org. Again, that's thecircusproject.org. Have you ever wanted to float in outer space? To close your eyes and not feel your body? At Float On, you float in body temperature water more buoyant than the Dead Sea. People float to relieve stress, recover from injuries, eliminate chronic pain, and experience the most complete relaxation they've ever felt. Open 24 hours a day, Float On is at Southeast 45th and Hawthorne. Call 503 384 2620 or visit floathq.com.